Well, thank you, Katie. Um, whether they card me or not, uh, there are pastoral privileges. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, well, good morning. It's great to be in worship uh, with you today and to continue our series, um, Do One Thing. And uh, we, this month, we've been focusing on uh, stewardship, and uh, we're going to continue that today in a, in a kind of, um, we, we steward certain things. We steward capital and core and creation, as Jack mentioned um, last week. Uh, but we also uh, steward some other things that we'll, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about today. <clears throat> so, so some of you, those of you who are, you know, 40 and over, you probably have heard the term soul brother, soul sister, right? You probably have heard that term before. If you are below that age, then just go look it up. You'll see. Uh, the interesting thing is that 1957, the, the word or phrase soul uh, brother came into existence, and uh, it was unique to the black community at first, and then it actually became something that was a part of culture. Uh, Ten years later, Soul Sister came into uh, existence and, um, in 1967. And when you use the term soul brother, soul sister, it was actually communicating something. It was communicating that you get me, that you are a part of my experience, that we are connected not only physically, but we are connected mentally and emotionally and even, in some cases, spiritually. In other words, you and I have a kindred spirit, that you are my soul brother, and then, you know, if you were... Back in the day, you probably had an afro. For some of you who didn't know, I, I did used to have an afro. Um, that's kind of hard to imagine, but I did. Um, and, uh, but some of you probably remember that. You would you know, slap the person five, and you would do your thing, and you would say, you're my soul brother, my soul sister. It's a person who understands your experiences, a person who is with you in through thick and thin. Now, now we don't really use that phrase, those phrases anymore today, though the, they, they've been taken out of circulation. I wonder if we can recapture the essence of the concept of soul brother, soul sister. Now, before the moniker came out, uh, the monikers came out in the 1950s and the 1960s, um, I believe that it was true of the first Christians, and it should be true of every follower of Jesus today. I wonder if we can reclaim it and reimagine soul brother and soul sister and put it in the context of how the early church actually used it. And so that's, that's the idea that we want to try to steward some values today that, that put us, uh, that allows us to reimagine and recapture the essence of what it means to be stewards of the concept soul brother and soul sister. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. If you're using the Bible that the church has provided, it's page 913 or 912. Acts chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 33, uh, 32 through 35, 32 through 35. 
32 through 35, Acts chapter 4. Let me set the context of this particular passage so that we have, um, uh, we, we kind of understand uh, what's happening. This is post-resurrection, post-Pentecost. Post-resurrection, before after Jesus rose from the dead, post-Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit, pour, when, the, when God poured out the Holy Spirit on a group of people that empowered them to actually, um, for, for Peter to preach the gospel, and then 3,000 people in one day repented of their sins and actually surrendered their lives to Jesus. So this is post-resurrection, post-Pentecost, and, and this is the birth of, chapter 2 of Acts, is the birth of this vibrant community called the church or called Christians. Chapter 3, however, uh, we see uh, this idea of persecution happening to the early church. So, so Peter and John... Uh, after Peter uh, preached the gospel, there are people who've come to know Jesus. In chapter 3, Peter and John heal a man who was born lame. And as he healed a man, it drew a crowd. And Peter and John says, oh, here's an opportunity to actually preach the gospel to these people. And as they're preaching the gospel, not only did it draw a crowd, it actually drew the religious leaders at the time. And at that point, the religious leaders began to persecute Peter and John. They threw them into prison. And as they're released from prison, they went to the group where the church was meeting, and they began praying for boldness to preach the gospel. They prayed for this, this unhindered kind of power and courage to preach the gospel. And that's where we find ourselves now in chapter 4. Chapter 4, we get a sneak peek uh, at the early church and how they were actually soul brothers and soul sisters that actually... Um, they began to steward certain things very well. The first thing that they stewarded was they stewarded the value of unity. Everybody say unity. All right, so look at verse number 32. Look at verse number 32. It says, now the full member of those who believed, we're talking about close to 3,000 people, were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that, um, any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And so soul brothers and soul sisters are encouraged, are encouraged to value, value unity. And so what we have here of one soul and one mind and one soul, it is that they shared their lives. Like they literally had everything in common. Now they were very different, but the one thing that they had in common was their faith in Jesus Christ. And so the thing when we hear one mind and one soul that is, the very, their very beings were connected. They were united in the deepest part of their lives. What Jack talked about last week, their core was connected. 
their physical, their mental, their spiritual, they were all connected. There was an inarticulate and intangible bond between these early Christians. Now, you and I probably have done this before. You've, have you ever met someone and you've never, met, I mean, you've never met them before? You don't have a relationship with them. They're from a different part of the world, different part of the, the, the country, and you meet them and there's something about them. They're full of grace and they're full of uh, forgiveness. There's something that's drawing you to them and them to you. And you say, man, I can't quite put my finger on it, but you feel comfortable in their presence. It feels like you know them. Well, the truth is, is that, that that's the kind of thing they experience. It was Jesus in them, the Jesus in them, and the Jesus in you. They were connected at the heart. They were connected through Jesus. I've been to a number of different countries, and I can guarantee you that, that every time I see, every time I get to the country, different culture, different language, different uh, style of ministry, but I walk in and I see joy, and I see this grace, and I see this attractiveness, and I feel like I've known these individuals all of my life. It happened when I went to Russia. It happened when I went to Africa. It happened when I went to South Africa, East Africa. It, it's, it literally never fails. There are Christians everywhere, and I feel connected, and that connection is because of Jesus. Now, there were no fissures, and there were no factions, and there were no divisions. Now, this is kind of astounding. It's astounding because just a few days prior, there were Jews from literally all over the known world in Jerusalem, and Peter preached, and they repented and believed the gospel. The text says in Acts chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, it says, you had Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and other parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. So that may not mean very much, like, like I don't even understand what all of that means. So let me give you a picture of what this might have looked like. So you have center Jerusalem. And these are people who are literally coming from all over the known world, as far as from Rome and Egypt and North Africa and Iraq and Iran and Syria and Turkey. And all of these people converge on Jerusalem because it's the day of Pentecost. It's one of the three major feast days in Jerusalem on the Jewish calendar. And they're there to celebrate and they're there to praise and worship God. And little did they know that the Spirit of God would move, and even though they did not know one another's languages, even even though they did not know one another's cultures, the Spirit of God fell on them. They heard the gospel, and they are now together, unified, no divisions, no factions, and they are one body. This is amazing to me. This is, the re- this is the 
fixing of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10, where God confused the languages. And now we have in Acts chapter 2, God saying, God says that this is the way I wanted it to be since Eden. I wanted a people unified. I wanted a people without division. And so we see that God is at work. One of the things that he wants us to steward and steward well, he wants us to steward unity. Now, does this mean, Marvin, that believers saw everything eye to eye? It doesn't necessarily, it doesn't mean that they saw eye to eye. Some people think that to mean what it means to dwell in unity is that we all carry the same Bible and we all send our kids to the same schools and we all sing the same songs and we all have the same styles. It doesn't mean that. In fact, if we try to fit everyone in our mode, it would actually be more disunifying than it is unifying. It would actually increase Uh, judgmental inflexibility in all of our lives. That's not what this means. What it does mean is that Jesus, they recognize that Jesus was the standard. They recognize that Jesus was the core. They recognize that Jesus, in fact, he was Lord over all. He was Lord over those from Mesopotamia. He was Lord over those from Syria. He was Lord over those from North Africa. He was Lord over all. That's what that meant. And they were unified around that. The early Christians definitely had different foods and different opinions and different clothing and different languages, different customs. But they were united on who Jesus was, and Jesus was, in fact, the standard by which they lived and interacted with one another. So then nobody, no, uh, there's, there's one person who does this, who's, who's talked about this very well, and this is A.W. Tozer in his book called The Pursuit of God. This is what he says. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are, one of, they are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard by which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Now, this is what A.W. Tozer is saying, that you and I can actually have a unity conscious and not achieve unity. That you and I can talk about unity, we can talk about fellowshipping together and never achieve unity. Now, what he is saying is, is that Jesus is our tuning fork. That Jesus is our standard. And the closer we get to Jesus, the closer we get to one another. The closer we get to Jesus and recognize his standard, the closer we get to one another. I checked this out with Ben. Ben said, it is not just pianos, that is Ben Diaz, it's not just pianos that are tuned to 440 hertz. It is every instrument. So every instrument that's tuned to 440 hertz, that is the musical pitch for every instrument. And so Jesus is our tuning fork. Can you put that tuning fork up there? He is our tuning fork, and 
He is the standard by which we forgive one another. He is the standard by which we give grace to one another. He is the standard by which we love one another. He is the standard by which we don't, we don't tolerate one another. We celebrate one another. We celebrate our differences and we say we are different though we are different. We sit at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and when we do that, we are more unified than ever. So he'll take my black skin and your white skin and your yellow skin and your brown skin. He'll take your customs and my customs where you were raised and where I was raised. And when we set our eyes on him, we can celebrate him and celebrate our diversity and our unity together. So what does this look like? What what might this look like? I actually want to do this with with a number of questions. Uh, and and, and I, I want you to get in mind some of the things that we are disunified on. Politics. Now listen, this is an election year. I wish I could stay here for the rest of the message, right? This is an election year. And we better prepare. And we better prepare and guard our hearts against the strategies of Satan. Because Satan, I think, not only does he want to destroy your house, he wants to destroy this house. So here's some questions, not only on politics, we can talk about, um, we can talk about whether women in ministry, we can talk about a number of things that we differ on. Whether we send our kids to public schools or private schools or charter schools, a lot of things we differ on. But here's some questions that I think you and I should ask. When I am disagreeing, do I focus, do we focus on our core beliefs? Jesus and him crucified, death, his death, and his resurrection, his return. Do we focus on our core beliefs? Here's another one. Am I respectful in my dialogue with someone with whom I disagree? Here's another one. Do I seek, do we seek the common good? The things that we do agree on. How about this one? Am I practicing empathy? Am I trying to understand the person with whom I'm disagreeing? Are they trying to understand me? Here's another one. Do I demonize and vilify the other person? Have I spent time praying with or praying for the other person? Well, Marvin, listen, if I agree with him, I would pray with him, but I'm definitely not going to pray with somebody I disagree with. You see how that sounds? So, so have I spent time praying with the person with whom I disagree? Am I focused on my agenda more than the kingdom agenda? And I know that we're going to disagree. Have I committed to forgiveness and reconciliation when we do disagree? When there is an offense? Have I committed to forgiveness and reconciliation as opposed to withdrawing and throwing away the many years of a good relationship? Does this make sense? So, this first church, this first church valued and stewarded unity, but they also valued something else. Soul brothers and soul sisters are marked by and encourage, are encouraged to steward not only the value of, of, um, of unity, but also grace. So look at verse 33. 
Verse 33, it says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And here it is, great grace was upon them all. I like what Luke said. Luke says great grace. Literally, it means mega grace. It means a lot of grace was upon them all. And what grace is simply is this. It is kindness. It really is God's kindness to undeserving people. And everybody in this room, we are recipients of God's kindness because we didn't deserve it. But not only is it, it, it it's kindness to undeserving people, not only is, is it receiving it, it is actually sharing it with others. It is actually saying, hey, listen, I... Yeah, what you just did, that doesn't deserve grace. It doesn't deserve kindness. But I'm going to give it to you anyway. That's not, again, it's not being uh, a doormat. But it is saying that I have the capacity to give you grace because God has created that capacity by giving me grace, by giving you grace. So this early church, they were stewards of God's mega grace. And there's no other appropriate response other than gratitude and humility and to be able to share that grace with others. A good example of this, a good example of this, turn with me to um, to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter uh, chapter 9. This is a great example of, of, um, of grace and kindness that shows up the kind of kindness and grace that was on the upon the people but also that they were sharing with others. And it's 2 Samuel chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 7, and you'll get the context of the story. The context of the story is David is looking for, Jonathan was David's best friend, so they, they were kind of knitted together. Jonathan and David were best friends. David is a king in the Old Testament. Jonathan was, um, was the son of a king, and they became very, very close. Jonathan dies, And David um, asks a question, and here it is in chapter 9. It says, and David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and uh, the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, yes, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, try naming your kid that, he'll, I can't even say it, like, we, we, uh, Andrea and I were talking, she said, can you just do a, like a, a shorter name, like a nickname, and so we said Fib, but I, I, that misses the point, so <laughs> Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell at his feet or fell on his face, and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, 
for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and he said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog as I? And so what this early church understood is that they they did not deserve the grace of God, and yet God gave them the grace. And they said, since God gave us grace, we will show grace to other people who don't deserve it. And so kind of like what David is saying, you will always eat at my table. So let me let me get let me get three let me get three guys. If you can come up very very quickly, three guys will come up to the to the stage. Very, you don't have any lines. You don't have to say anything. All right, you don't have to say anything. Just three guys. We got one. Okay, we got a second one, and we got a we got a third one. All right, have a seat. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Give these young these young men a hand. Yeah. So notice, they're at the table. And y'all just, just kind of eat and kind of pretend like you're eating at the table. <laughs> I told you y'all didn't have any lines, all right? Y'all didn't have. Now they're enjoying the grace of God. They're enjoying how God has showered them with kindness and love and forgiveness and grace. And yet there's something wrong about this picture. Who can tell me what's wrong about this picture? Yes. I'm sorry? There's an empty chair. There's an extra chair. And this is what the early church did. It says, listen, there is more room at God's table. There is more space for grace. And there are more people in this city who need to hear the gospel. But sometimes we hoard the grace of God. We are sitting at the table. We're eating up everything that God has given. And there is yet another table. But what it means to have mega grace is for these individuals at the table to say, wait a minute, something is wrong about this. There's an extra chair. Is there someone who is still in our world that have crippled feet that needs to be at the table? You see, the the reality is this. You all had crippled feet. Not literally, metaphorically. And God says, like David, is there anyone left in the world that I can show kindness? And he says, absolutely, there's another. There's a, there's a Mephibosheth named Jonathan. There's a, uh, yeah, him named Brian, named Abel. And I'll invite them to my table. So our job, if we're going to be stewards of God's grace, we have to, in our minds, say, there's never not enough space at God's table. There is never not anyone who does not belong to God's table. You say, well, wait a minute. Well, you don't know what they did, Marvin. Wait a minute. God says, you don't know what you did. And he says, I provided a space at the table. So what it means practically, husbands, your wife may be crippled in her feet. She needs your kindness. Wife, your husband may be crippled in his feet. You know what I'm talking about. There are flaws and all of those things. He needs your kindness. 
Parents, their children may be crippled in their feet. They need your kindness. Children, your parents are crippled in their feet and they need your kindness. Employers, your workers crippled in their feet and they need your kindness. Employees, they need your kindness. So this first church, thank you all, thank you all. This first church says that there's room at God's table. So our job as a church and our job as stewards of God's grace is to invite all the Mephibosheths to the table. So tomorrow when you wake up, when I wake up, ask the question, oh God, who can I show kindness to today? Who even may not deserve it. In fact, I would, I would, that's the test of grace. Not giving grace, undeserved kindness, or, or, or kindness to someone who deserves it, but give grace to someone who does not. So that's the, that's the second value. The third value is power. This third value is power. Look at verse 33. We'll come, we'll, uh, verse 33, we'll go back in Acts, verse 33 of chapter 4. That's what it says. It says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So the third uh, value that soul brothers and soul sisters are encouraged to steward is power. So, so these early believers, they not only were unified and not only were they filled with great grace, but they actually stewarded power. That is the power of the resurrection. So these early, uh, these early believers, in the same word, great power, it was mega power, explosive power, transformative power. And so these early believers not only believe and testify to the resurrection, but they also lived a life of resurrection. And as a result, many, many people believed. And so the reason why they believed is because there was evidence. Notice, they didn't believe because they had the Bible. The Bible hadn't even been written yet. I would, say, I would dare say there was something greater. They believed because of eyewitness accounts. That they saw Jesus alive after he had died. So you and I are called to steward the resurrection. And what that means for us, every believer in this room, you should know why you believe Jesus rose from the dead. You know why? This doesn't make any sense. Me standing here preaching doesn't make sense if Jesus is not raised from the dead. This doesn't make sense. All the songs we just sang, it doesn't make any sense if Jesus is not raised from the dead. You giving your resources, your money, it doesn't make any sense if Jesus is not raised from the dead. If this, this building should not be here, if Jesus is not raised from the dead. The truth is that he is, he died, and he rose again. And every believer, if you say that you, you are a Christian, you and I should know why we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. 
So when you get to the places where people began to doubt faith and doubt the Bible and doubt Christianity, you can say that, yeah, I understand. I may not be able to understand all the stuff of the Old Testament, but I do know one thing. I believe that he rose from the dead. And here are five reasons I believe it. You should know. So that's what it means to steward the resurrection. It's not just, "Ah, I believe it because Marvin said it. I believe it because Jack said it. I believe it because Dave said it. No, I believe it because I see the evidence. But not only that, we're to not only steward the facts of the resurrection, we're to steward the transforming power of the resurrection. In other words, if I believe that Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and I have received him into my life, then my life ought to be different. Every day, you and I should be taking off the old and putting on on the new. That's what it means to steward the resurrection power. It means that, that, that God, I am repenting of my selfishness. I'm repenting of my greed. I am repenting of all the things that's not aligned with your kingdom ethic. And I, I need your power to forgive like you forgave Jesus. I need your power to show grace like you showed Jesus. So that's what it means to steward the resurrection. Each day, the Spirit is saying, how much will you give me today? So we're called to steward the power. And then lastly, we're called to steward um, care. So we're called to steward unity, grace, power, and then care. Verse 34 and 35. 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was uh, distributed, distributed to each as any had need. So this early church practiced care very well. Um, the power of the cross was not just, it caused them to sing songs and listen to messages. But it actually not only impacted their souls, it impacted their finances and their economics as well. And so this communion, this unity um, was it showed up in the way they stewarded their money, their capital, as Jack talked about last week. Now, this is not communism. This is not uh, socialism. Um, communism says what is everyone's, uh, what, is, uh, what, is, uh, what is everyone's is, what is yours is everyone's. That's what communism says. Uh, what Christianity says is what, what's mine is yours that I'm voluntarily helping you when you have a need. A generous spirit permeated this entire church, individually, but also collectively. They, they said, listen, there are people who are struggling in this community, and so we're going to show up. And periodically, what they would do, they would sell lands, they would sell houses, they would sell some of their expensive things, and they would bring the proceeds and lay it at the apostles' feet. They, they didn't have like a deacon's ministry like ours. And told the apostles that we trust you. We've seen the spirit of God at work in your life. And what we want you to do is distribute it to the person who can't pay their rent. Distribute it to the person who's struggling. They lost their land because they started following Jesus. 
And so there are more wealthy people, the wealthy people in the congregation sold stuff periodically. They didn't do it all the time, but as the need arose, they sold it and said, hey, can you take care of John? Can you take care of Mary? I heard that, I heard that Sue had a, an issue with her, her plumbing. Oh, I, I heard that such and such, her carburetor is messed up. Hey, can you, and, and again, you know, obviously you know they didn't have carburetors back then. I'm just saying. Her horse is, something's wrong with our horse. I don't know. Can you take the money and give it to this person? And they cared for one another. Well, Oh, that we would be that kind of church. Oh, that we would be that, those kinds of Christians. In fact, we are that kind of church. Every week or every time you get paid and on the envelope or online, there's a little section called the Deacon's Fund. And some of you, you religiously and faithfully give to the Deacon's Fund. You know where that money goes? That money that you give, it actually goes to bless people in our congregation who have needs, who can't pay their rent, who are struggling with car payments, who are, who are struggling with food. So, so the money that you give, and our deacons are faithful. They're faithful to serve the people of this church. And not only of this church, but even beyond. So we, we're kind of modeling this, this spirit of care. And that's not to brag, but that's just simply to say, God has blessed Trinity Church. And he's blessed Trinity Church because of you. And so thank you for helping us to live in the shadows of this early church. They practiced, they stewarded care very, very well. They said, listen, we don't want anybody to go hungry. We don't want anyone to get put out. We don't want anyone to lose their land. So we will sell some of ours so that others might have. Now, you have an opportunity to do that, yes, with the Deacon's Fund, but I want to introduce you um, to a, a friend of ours, a new friend of ours. And uh, for those of you, if you walked in, you saw the banners out, this is Compassion Sunday. Compassion International is a, is an, a, a phenomenal ministry where, we, um, where it serves children literally all over the world. And I, wanna, I want you to welcome to the platform um, someone who was a part of Compassion International came through the program, is now and now on the other side to be able to give back. Could you welcome to the platform my friend Owen? Praise the Lord, church. Praise the Lord. So, growing up as a kid, I had a dream, and my dream was a little bit different because I never wanted to become a doctor or a lawyer or a pilot, but for some amazing reason, I always wanted to become an accountant. <laughs> I know. But then I found out soon enough that that would never happen. It would never happen because of the family that I was born in. And I was born in Nairobi, Kenya, in a family of three boys, and my mom was a sole breadwinner, and... She would make about 5 to $10 a month. 5 to $10 a month wasn't enough to support us or even put a meal a day. 
And so food was one of our biggest needs. And I remember going to bed so many nights hungry. And I had to go find food elsewhere. Otherwise, I was going to starve. Uh, and that meant knocking on people's doors, begging for food, which wasn't a very good experience because, you know, I had knocked on these people's doors so many times, they were just tired of seeing my face over and over again. But I had to keep knocking on those doors because I needed food. And so a lot of times, you know, when I knocked on their door, they saw me and shut the door on my face. And a few times they let me in, a lot of times they humiliated me. But I needed the food, so I had to keep knocking on those doors. Water was a huge problem for us because we didn't have taps or faucets that we would get clean water out of. So the source of water that we had came from this river. The color of the water was brown and greenish in color. See, this is the water that we, you know, we, uh, we had to work with. And brown water doesn't taste good. It doesn't matter how many times you boil it. Hmm. It tastes terrible. And so, you know, from the drinking the brown water and sometimes having to go dig through trash to find food to eat, I was often sick as a little boy and grew up in a community where if a mother was pregnant and they went into the hospital to deliver their child, there was a very big possibility that either them or their child would not make it out alive. And so... Grew up in a community where so many people didn't have names until they were five years old because their parents would wait for them to grow up long enough to see if they can actually use their names. And, you know, poverty is bad. I would never wish poverty on anybody. But, I mean, the lack of food and clean water, that was hard. Knowing that every time I got sick, I was not able to get medical care, that was difficult. In fact, my mom told me that when I was one year old, I, I came down with measles in a year that we lost a lot of babies in Kenya. She couldn't take me to a hospital, and so she had to hold me the whole night and hope that I was going to be fine. She told me that night she didn't think I would make it. I just can't imagine as a parent what was going on in her mind. See, that was hard. But the absolute worst thing about poverty is the hopelessness that comes from poverty. Is knowing that you're trapped in that situation for life. There is no hope for you. It's when people looked at me straight in the eyes and told me that I am worth less. I will never amount to anything. When they asked me this question that we love to ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? I always answered with a smile in my face that I want to become an accountant. But it's what they told me that wiped the smile out of my face and crushed the little hopes that I still had because they told me, don't waste your time dreaming because none of your dreams will ever come true. That was a harsh reality. And I thought that was going to be my life. I thought I was born poor, I was going to live poor and die poor and end of story. Nobody would ever get to hear my story but God. But God had a different story for my life. Because when I was eight years old, my mom had about this church that was helping kids. And this is how I got introduced to the Ministry of Compassion International. Compassion only works through the local church. So my mom told me to go get ready because they had sent out an announcement that they were registering kids to help them. 
And my mom held my hand as we walked through the doors of this church. We had no idea that our lives were about to change forever. We went in, Compassion has to make sure that these kids who want help really do need help. And, and in my case, it didn't take very much convincing. So I got registered. One of the first things they did, just like Dennis, they took a picture of me, printed out a packet just like this, sent it out to a church in Wisconsin. And on a, on a Sunday morning in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a guy walked by the table, saw my picture on a packet said, I'm going to sponsor this kid. So they started this relationship with my sponsor where he would send me letters and, you know, tell me that he loved me. One of the first times I had ever heard those words uttered my way, that he was praying for me. And it just, it just blew my mind. Someone thousands of miles away from me would look up my way with affection but because I got sponsored, I got the opportunity to go to this church where I was loved on in a way I had never been loved on before. And it was at this church that I got to hear about Jesus. And it's compassion is passionate about Jesus. I had no idea who Christ was. And then I started going to this church. And these people, man, they, they were loving on me in a way I had never been loved on before. And when they talked about this Jesus and I connected their dots, I wanted their Jesus. Because I wanted to see, you know, what he could do for me if he could do that through them. And so I remember going to the church and I said, I've come to accept your Jesus because I want to see for myself if what you preach to us about this Jesus is really true. So I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. And that was the best decision I ever made as a kid was to accept Christ. That was the best gift that compassion gave to me, the gift of Jesus Christ. Because here's the thing. Poverty left my life the day Christ came into my life. See... When I got Jesus, I got a hope that was way more stronger than the poverty that I faced. That if compassion had just given me Jesus and told me to go my way, I would have been just fine. Because when I knew the truth was when the truth set me free. Compassion didn't stop at Jesus. They gave me food and clean water. Every time I got sick, they took me to hospital. They took me to school. I was the first person in my whole family to graduate high school. Went on to college and I did my bachelor's degree in, guess what? Accounting. Yeah. And sat for my CPA license here in the U.S. and I'm a, you know, I'm a CPA. I'm an accountant! The one thing they told me that I would never, you know, not to waste my time dreaming is my reality today. Because 20 some years ago, a guy by the name Owen saw this kid's name, whose name was Owen, and decided to sponsor them and chose to believe that this kid is real. Twenty-some years later, look what the Lord can do. And see, the picture there is uh, when, when I got engaged to you know, my beautiful wife, I, one of the first calls I wanted to make was to Owen we, I used to call him big bro. He used to call me small bro because he wasn't very much older than I am. But see, my, my compassion sponsor left a mark in my life. He had no idea that picking out that packet 
would make the impact that it did today. And so on our biggest day, my sponsor, Owen, was the best man in our wedding. And that's a picture of compassion. And the next picture there is, you know, I thought, Owen sponsored Owen. Why doesn't Owen sponsor Owen? And so that is Owen from Nicaragua. And Owen is one of our three kids that me and my wife sponsored through Compassion. You know, because I believe in the ministry of Compassion. It changed my life. You know, Compassion changed my life. And, but not only did they do that, but because they sponsored me and I got out of poverty, I was able to go back and take my whole family from poverty. Because someone picked out a packet. Poverty in my family, the generational curse of poverty has been broken. Poverty stops with me. And the last picture there is a picture of, you know, my beautiful family. And we have... Uh, and that picture is missing our little girl. So we have three boys and then finally we have a girl. And... So that's the most beautiful thing. It's because poverty stops with me. My kids will never know poverty and the generations to come. Because someone 20 some years ago chose to believe that this kid was real and chose to love on me with, you know, through compassion. And, and now I can stand here and, you know, tell you my story, tell you my testimony. But, you know, one of the most beautiful things about compassion is because they gave me Jesus. I was able to go back and take, you know, take Jesus to my whole family. My whole family got to know Jesus because I got to go to that church and I got to hear about Jesus. And see, I can never share my story without talking about Jesus. That is compassion. And to wrap it up, you know, about three years ago, I started working for compassion as, guess what? An accountant. <laughs> and, and you can quote me as a CPA. See, I love compassion because it changed my life as a sponsored child. I love compassion because we sponsor, you know, we try and sponsor uh, one child for every one of our kids that we have because I believe in the ministry of compassion. But I was, I had a pause because I hoped that compassion looked so good on the outside. I really hoped that when I started working for them, they would look good on the inside. And you can quote me as a CPA. I love compassion even more because of their financial integrity. They do what they say they do. And I'll invite the pastor here. And yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Owen. And um, isn't it just a great story? Thank you so much again. Uh, you are an accountant. You are an accountant. So just like uh, Owen's sponsor and just like Owen, you and I have an opportunity um, to, to sponsor as well. Tanya and I have uh, sponsored uh, two, um, Enoch and Angela, and we've been sponsoring Enoch and Angela probably for the last, um, last 10 years or so. And so you get an opportunity. This is Compassion Sunday and, um, you know, if you want this, if you want Dennis, if there's a Dennis in the house and you want Dennis, you can have, uh, you can have Dennis. Um, this is, there are two ways you can sign up. You can do it physical, um, 
fill out a physical copy. It's going to be out in the atrium. The tables are there. Or there's a QR code right there uh, on the front of the packet that you can scan and sign up that way. It takes about $43 a month uh, to sponsor, uh, to care for um, a compassion, uh, to sponsor a child. And um, don't take the packet home. Say, well, I want to take the packet home and pray about it. Don't take the packet home. It takes about three to four minutes to do it. Um, if you can, that, you say, well, $43, man, that's a lot. And, and I, I get that. I really do. Um, listen to what the Spirit of God is saying to you. Um, it might be, I, I can't afford it right now, but maybe someone, uh, we can afford it together. Or some of you who do have means, you say, well, I'm, we can, it's not about one child, it's about how many children we can, uh, we can sponsor. So this is an opportunity for you, opportunity for us as a church uh, to sponsor um, a number of different, we have about 200 packets out there. This is, this is, we are already sponsoring children in Nairobi, Kenya, and a place called Makawani, um, um, Korogocho and Makawani. So we have about 400 kids that we're already sponsoring. Some of you are in the room and you're doing that. Yeah, we are, like, like this is a good church. You are part of a good church that says we want to love well and care well because we want to steward, uh, we want to steward unity. We want to steward grace. We want to steward the power of the resurrection. And we want to steward care as best as we can. So we have an opportunity to do that. Uh, it would be great if all the packets disappeared today uh, between this service and the next to say that we are, um, this church is responding to the need that's out there. So you have that opportunity. So once you leave out, right at the table, you can, um, Angela Clark Pollard is out there as, uh, as well as a few other people to talk with you, answer your questions. Let's stand. Let's stand. And I'm asking our, um, our prayer team members and elders and deacons to come down front. Um, if you need someone to pray with you, um, they're here to pray with you. Let me pray for us as, a, as we depart. So, Father, thank you for your great grace. Thank you for your great power, your mega grace and your mega power. We pray that the same unity, one heart and one soul, one mind and one soul that was permeating in the early church, it would permeate this church, but not only this church, but it would permeate our homes, that husbands and wives would be unified, families would be unified, that Jesus would be our tuning fork, and he would be the standard by which we live our lives, that you would uh, bless us with great grace, reminding us that the Mephibosheths of the world are welcomed at our table. Not at our table, it's your table. And so may we not hoard your grace, but may we be willing to share it with others. And then may we steward the power of the resurrection. May we know not only that, that we believe it, but that we know why we believe the resurrection is true and that we would see it showing up in our lives. And then may we steward care very well. Thank you for blessing this church to care for people inside of this church and outside and uh, we believe that part of the reason you've blessed us the way you have is because we've attempted to be faithful over all you've blessed us with. Thank you for our deacons who faithfully serve the people of this congregation. 
Thank you for Owen. Thank you for him coming all the way from Colorado. Thank you for um, the, the man in Milwaukee picking up his packet saying, I want to sponsor this child. And 20 years later, we see your great grace and we see your great power. What you can do with someone who believes the resurrection of Jesus. Bless your people. Bless this church. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Even the one who died rose again, sitting at your right hand right now. In his name we pray. Everybody said together, amen. God bless you all. Thank you all for being here today. And um, have a great week.